Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I know how disappointed you feel because I feel it too. And so do tens of millions of Americans who invested their hopes and dreams in this effort. This is painful, and it will be for a long time. But I want you to remember this. Our campaign was never about one person or even one election. It was about the country we love and about building an America that's hopeful, inclusive, and big-hearted. We have seen that our nation is more deeply divided than we thought. But I still believe in America, and I always will. And if you do, then we must accept this result and then look to the future. Now it's time for America to bind the wounds of division. We have to get together. To all Republicans and Democrats and independents across this nation, I say it is time for us to come together as one united people. Welcome, everyone, to the 11th episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast. It's a new day, a new United States of America, and happy pop culture escapism is taking a back seat on this episode. So I want to use this forum to talk a little bit about the reality of the Trump presidency. People are upset. Half of America is protesting in the streets across the nation, and there's this feeling of hopelessness that has seeped into half of the country. The only way to get past this is by opening the right channels of conversation, by asking direct but honest questions that you won't hear from particular news networks. Think of this platform as an alternative voice to legacy media, a place where your voice does matter, especially right now. In today's episode, we are speaking to a wide array of people, such as Glenn Albright, a clinical psychologist, about the malaise that many people are feeling at this moment. What is it, and how do we recover from it? I also chat with reporter Alex Emmons from the news website The Intercept about his article, The Nightmare President. How bad does he think America will be under Trump? I then chat with Debbie Turner-Bell, an African-American journalist and mother, about her view of the media right now and what she's telling her children about this new future. And finally, I interview Jessica Reyes, a Latina Trump supporter whose answers will make you rethink about the so-called unity of Latinos in the United States today. We begin with Jessica Reyes, a Latina who voted for Trump and who, during our interview, blasted Univision journalist Jorge Ramos, Mexicans, and shared her feelings about the dysfunctions and hypocrisy of the Latino community, along with the backlash that her and her family have suffered for her vote of Donald Trump. She joins me now 
on the podcast. Hi, Jessica. Yes, how can I help you? First of all, may I ask mm -hmm. what your heritage is? I'm Mexican-American. Okay. After Trump comments about Mexicans being rapists, calling for mass deportations, proposing a wall along the southwest border, didn't you feel compelled to support your fellow Mexicans in their time of need at any point? No, not at all. Okay, tell me why. I, because that's, I think, one of the deep questions that people are really scratching their heads about. And we want to be able to understand you a lot better. Um, um, I don't feel attached to Mexico because... Um, because if things were better in Mexico, then my parents wouldn't have left the U.S. to make a, um, to the U.S. to make a better life for ourselves. And the other thing that um, Mr. Donald Trump said is that he said most Mexicans. He didn't say all Mexicans. So I don't fit into. But you the know that's semantics. But, that's just. Um, and I understand your point, but my point is that I feel I, I feel no attachment to Mexico. It's not my country. Uh, the people from over there don't affect my way of life. I'm an American, and I want I want what's best for my country. Were you born here, or were you born in Mexico? I was born in Mexico. Mm -hmm. At what point did the change happen in you, that you decided to abandon your Mexican roots? Uh, I started in the military. I'm a U.S. Veteran. I'm a US veteran. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what was it? Was it conversations with people? What exactly triggered this change in you? It was me doing my research. It was me understanding how America truly operates. And how what did you find out? How if you put the work and effort into it, you get what you want. You don't need a handout to become somebody in this, in this country, to get a college education, to own a house, to have a car, to be able to survive. Whereas in Mexico, I wouldn't have had the opportunities that I've had here in the U.S. Let me ask you, what do you think about Mexicans in general? Mexicans from Mexico. I think that they should come together and create a revolution in their country if they want change. They're too passive. They always talk about change, but they don't make it happen. 33% of Latinos voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. What dissatisfaction did these group of Latinos, in your mind, have with Obama and Clinton? They didn't do anything for the Latino community. They had eight years. And this is my other, my other argument that I have against the Obama um, administration. You promised the Latino that you were going to do something about immigration from the get-go, and yet nothing happened. Nothing happened. You do know that Donald Trump and Mike Pence want to deport 11 million people back to Mexico, even if those people did come here, became, uh, have their kids in school, uh, do support and have contributed to the economy of this country, right? I understand that. Now, you know, if you remove 11 million people from this, there's going to be a wide range of ramifications negatively that the country is going to go through because a lot of white Americans say that they feel that their jobs have been taken from Mexicans. But Mexicans say, are saying, but if we don't do those jobs, you wouldn't do those jobs anyway. And then ultimately we all lose together. But, you know, at the end of the day, if somebody needs a job, they're going to do the job they need to do. How do you think you will benefit from a Trump presidency? How? I'm a veteran. He... If he takes care of veterans, I will benefit from that. Do you feel there is bad blood between U.S. Latinos and Latin American immigrants in this country? Mm, I really don't know because, uh, to be honest with you, uh, a lot of my uh, friends or acquaintances are not Hispanics or Latinos. Are not. And, and I think it's because I don't have, um, I don't live in a, I live in a military town. 
And what is the culture there? It's a military culture. You know, we respect our country. We respect uh, each other. Even if we have different points of view, we can still come together at a table and have dinner together and care, care about each other, no matter what. Are you planning on going back into the military? Oh, no, 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 no. Now, what, what words of advice do you have for people that are in the military that might disagree with Trump? Uh, Trump has basically said, and, and you know what, maybe you can speak to this. Trump has said that our military is a disaster. It is a disaster. Why? It can is. you tell I us? I agree, because when I was in the military, you would get promoted because of the basis of your um, performances. Now you get promoted because you're female, because of the color of your skin, and that should not happen. A leader should be a person who can demonstrate traits of a leader, not because of the color of your skin or your gender. In the military, it's happening. That, that's happening to our military right now, and it's weak. And our leaders are weak in the military. Did you feel at any time a backlash for being a Trump supporter? Oh, yes, of course I did, especially for my family, my own family. What did you go through? Um... They will call me a racist, of course. Uh, they will call me a traitor. They will tell me that, oh, you forgot about where you came from. And I want to make this clear to everybody. I do not tell people that I was not born in Mexico. You ask me, I will tell you. The, the one thing that I want people to understand is that I have no ties to Mexico. Because why? Because my parents were mistreated in Mexico. The government of Mexico gave us nothing. Whereas we come here, and what do we get? We, we have everything, even more than we can ask for. And so, um, and so yes, my family, the, the Hispanic community, um, it, it was awful. Sometimes you couldn't even, like, state an opinion because it will come at you aggressively. I went to a Donald Trump um, rally, uh-huh. and I had to, like, walk around where the Latino population was at because I felt like I was going to be attacked. So it was intimidation. I felt intimidated where, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I shouldn't feel like this in my country, in the nation that I serve for. Why do you think it it was horrible? Why do you think this hostility exists? Because people are not educated enough. People believe the hype, the media, the rhetoric, the, the culture of fear that is instilled in the Hispanic community when you watch the news. That's why. Do you feel that we are unified as a Latino community here in the United States? We're not. We're not because when you see somebody succeed that is um, a Latino or Hispanic or somebody that's trying to get out of that, you know, square or stereotype that, you know, America has this in, they see you as a traitor. They see you as a sellout, as um, a gringo, whitewashed. Where you're just trying to, to show them, demonstrate to them that, you know what, it's okay to embrace the American culture. Don't forget about your roots, but also embrace what America is about. You work hard, you go to work, you put in the time, you get what you want. Don't wait for a handout. Do you watch Univision or Telemundo News? No, but I hear it sometimes because when I go visit my mom, she watches those news on networks. And what they talk about, does it resonate with you in any way? No. Mm-mm. What do you think about Jorge Ramos and everything he's been talking about? Jorge Ramos should, he is a person that instills fear into Hispanic people. He does. And that's a shame because instead of empowering people, telling them that, you know, you can do this if you put in the hard work, if you don't listen to what people tell you you should be, 
if you break out of the mold, then you can do something about the Latinos in this country. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being so candid with us because it really allows us to be able to understand your opinions and why you supported Trump and uh, everything that led to this. No problem. And, you know, it's going to be a difficult change. It's going to be a difficult time. But at the end of the day, if we stand united, if we support each other, no matter what your political views are, no matter how you see this country, we're going to get through this. We will. One of the immediate impacts that happened after news broke that Donald Trump won the presidency was a dark sense of uneasiness that exhibited itself with physical and mental symptoms amongst many Americans. Some feel depressed, shocked, and unwell. To discuss this unrest, Dr. Glenn Albright joins me on the podcast to explain what it is exactly that we're feeling. Glenn, uh, can you please tell me your full name and what your profession is? Okay, my name is Glenn Albright, and I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, faculty member at Baruch College Department of Psychology, uh, which is one of the senior colleges of the City University of New York. Glenn, by walking the streets this week, there was this malaise that I felt that seemed to have settled into the psyche of at least half of the Americans. There seems to be a real fear for how their lives will be negatively impacted and affected by a Trump presidency. And I felt like there was almost like a grieving process that was occurring. This absence of hope that the country's going to regress 150 years, uh, that this is 9-11, but without the unification. Medically speaking, doctor, can you explain what this is, what this real palpable feeling is, and how do we recover from something like this? Uh, that's a great question, and I'm really glad that you asked it because just in talking about it, uh, having a conversation, uh, it's going to help a lot of people kind of consolidate what's happening in them to be able to understand it a little better, which will kind of insulate them from the uh, negative impact uh, for those who uh, were really quite devastated by the loss uh, of the election of, of Hillary Clinton. You mentioned about how you felt grieved, and yet there was no death. And I want to mention that there was a death, that people who are having the feelings now are mourning a loss that's very similar to a death. And they're having all the right feelings, the feeling of hopelessness, the feeling of anger, the feeling of, of sadness, the feeling of um, that you would have at a funeral. So you're having the right feelings and it's a process of grieving that moves us through those feelings. And so it's important to recognize it because it is the morning of a death. Doctor, has this Trump news affected your social interactions in any particular way? Uh, in the office, there was a, a silence. I taught a class that morning. Uh, the class was like numb. They were difficult to engage. So the really the thing you had to do was to talk to the class about what they were feeling, to allow them to have all their thoughts and all their feelings, which kind of freeze them of the impact of this event on them. So you, you had all the right feelings. Every, so many people I know uh, are going through the exact same thing. Um, just even last uh, two nights ago when I was watching the results come in and many of the broadcasters were in disbelief. 
Right. There was like a shock, like a level of paralysis of being able to, how the mind can understand what just happened, right? Yes, yes. And in a sense, um, it's a protective mechanism because uh, otherwise you'd be overwhelmed with with distress and anxiety. It's sort of like you you can't believe it. It's it's too painful to let it in that this could happen. Uh, There's too much at stake. So you see... This reaction, you know, happening election night and then lasting into the next day, and it'll be for some people for many days where they're shaking their heads, they can't believe it, they don't want to believe it, and this type of denial is very normal, and it's really important for people to understand that the denial, you know, let loosens up, and it leads to really a profound sense of of loss. And, and when you and I were talking earlier, um, you mentioned that you felt like you got punched in the gut. That's a real somatic complaint that goes along with grieving and loss. I mean, it hurts. And this hurt uh, stays with us. And we're constantly reminded by it, by, by the way, unlike the death of a real person where there is a recovery process here, you're grieving um, uh, and there will be a recovery process from that, but then you don't know what's going to happen in the future. You don't know what type of decisions are going to be made. You don't know how this is going to impact your life, your family's life. So it's kind of like hangs on. It's ongoing. And, in, and for some people, it's going to gnaw at them and gnaw at them. And it, it will have physical consequences as well as psychological. So how do we recover from something like this? Because as I understand the grieving process has uh, several stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. But that's not exactly accurate of what we're going through. So how would you say, doctor, that we should handle a situation like this? And is there light at the end of the tunnel for us mentally, physically, psychologically? There's always a light. And one of the ways you move through this is doing what you're doing exactly right now, and that's talking about it. People have to talk about all their thoughts, all their feelings about what just happened, what's going on inside of them. They have to, if you will, take advantage of their, of their connectedness with other people, with their social networks, whether it's face-to-face talking with people or Facebook or, you know, and... and chat rooms or whatever, to continually talk about their feelings and have them. Because if you or I engage in, in, in behaviors that don't allow us to express these feelings, they get bottled up inside, and, and there are consequences to that. So, and, and the stages that you mentioned, you know, originally developed by Cooper Ross, um, they don't have to occur in that order. And, and like last night, you were seeing uh, huge marches in major cities across the across the country. People are upset, Glenn. Yeah. People are upset. And I just feel that when something is this visible, something is so present in our lives, even if you feel like you're on the winning side, this is the type of stuff you can't ignore. Because ultimately, it's going to affect your daily dynamics socially with interaction with people and et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And this is, again, why it's critical to experience your feelings 
and talk about them. So it, it's not going to go away quickly, the pain that people feel, the disbelief, the hopelessness. But you have to have those feelings. You got to kind of be with them and let it hurt before you can move through it. I've been hearing about this, that there seems to be a lack of empathy from Trump supporters to the people who are feeling this pain. It seems very, uh, almost like a consensus within these political panels on television right now that there's a lack of empathy. What would you say for people who are Trump supporters, who are very happy for this Trump presidency, what would you say, how do they, what advice do you have for them for people who are on the other side? Boy, that's a great question because you're assuming that any advice that's taken will have an impact on their attitude <laughs> right. or their behavior. It might not. You're right. right. And so I'm not quite sure if we can have an impact like that. Um, and so I would focus more on the individual who's grieving and what they have to go through to be able to kind of like put it in place and to be able to cope uh, as opposed to trying to change the minds of people who were Trump supporters. Glenn, thank you very much for your words. Thank you very much for your advice. Uh, and thank you very much for being on the podcast and talking to us a little bit about this. Because I do feel that there's this is something real. This is not something a figment of people's imagination. When you're going through physical emotions... Uh, I, I do feel that the best thing is to always talk to somebody who probably knows a little bit more than you, such as yourself, and, um, and just air it out, right? Yeah, and, and there is hope. You have to believe there's hope. You have to uh, find resources within yourself uh, that kind of promote a sense of, of healing. And, you know, there's a future. And whether that future is four years away or whatever, uh, Position yourself from strength, uh, uh, kind of like get involved in activities, not only talking to friends, but activities that uh, would involve your own health, uh, exercise, uh, um, type of soothing type of behaviors that are healthy that everybody knows about, that a good time to engage in. Thank you very much for being on the podcast, Glenn. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. The Intercept, a fairly new journalistic website that many of the media elite read, has an article called The Nightmare President, written by Alex Emmons, a reporter who covers national security, foreign affairs, human rights, and politics for the site. He joins me now to discuss his thoughts on what America's future holds under President-elect Trump. Thanks for having me. Alex, uh, I got to read your your article, and you seem completely shocked. I mean, that's actually how you kind of started your whole article. Donald Trump shocked everyone by his own supporters Tuesday as his racist, racist, xenophobic, authoritarian, climate science denying, misogynistic, grab them by the P word, candidacy somehow carried him to victory. Let me ask you, mm -hmm. how did this happen? Well, I think that people are going to be talking about that for a long time. They're going to be talking about how the, the pundit class was sort of uh, deceived and how the entire polling industry got it wrong. Um, I think it's a little bit too early to say exactly how it happened. Um, but I think the significance of it is much broader than the fact that a lot of people are surprised. I think that Trump's candidacy, um, which was uh, built on terrorizing large parts of uh, large seg segments of the American population, uh, minorities, 
Um, I think that the fact that he was elected uh, causes a real sense of terror uh, for groups like uh, American Muslims. Um, and I think that they have a real reason right now to be afraid for their rights and physical security. When you first heard this and you started saying to yourself, this can't be real, how do you think we move forward as a society under this level of, I guess, xenophobia and, 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 and pessimism? How, how do we move forward as a society here in America when we're supposed to be the role models, the examples for the rest of the world? We have a, a climate-denying president-elect. Uh, we have a president-elect that doesn't want to admit any refugees, right? We have a president-elect that seems all right with the level of police violence in this country, um, so it's really hard to know where to start with that question. Um, it's hard not to be pessimistic, uh, but hopefully the, the systems of checks and balances will prevail in the right ways. How, uh, what conversations are you having with friends, family members, colleagues? Um, when you woke up this morning and you went to work, what, what are some of the, I guess, the, the, the reactions and thoughts of how you're coping with this news? Well, it's, uh, it's tough, and a lot of people I know are kind of shell-shocked. Um, you know, the, the reaction among my colleagues, uh, since, since The Intercept is a publication that focuses a lot on the militarization of society, on criminal justice, on immigration, on the war on terror, that it's hard not to see Trump's election as anything other than a massive setback in a way that's, uh, that's deeply alarming. I mean, this is someone who says he wants to bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding and he wants to bomb the expletive out of Middle Eastern countries. And, um, it's, it's difficult to know exactly what he's going to do, but it's, you know, it's, it's obviously a huge setback. You know, when we talk about Trump and everything he said, how much of it do you actually think is real and how much do you think was just hype rhetoric? Yeah, it's, it's difficult to know with a, a sort of carnival barking demagogue um, <laughs> that's a good way but, of putting it uh but there are a couple things that he has been uh consistent on throughout his entire campaign he's been consistent in that he will never criticize uh any police violence in this country he's been consistent in saying that uh if you are an immigrant or uh, an undocumented immigrant or the children of undocumented immigrants uh, who have, who have been in this country, you know, your whole life, then, uh, then you're going to be deported. There's going to be, you're going to be thrown in, you know, immigration detention. There's going to be some sort of state violence against you. Right. These are guarantees that I, I don't really think are hypothetical for him. And uh, I, you know, I don't think it's a show anymore. It's going to have real consequences. And then my final question to you is what is the silver lining here? How, how do we kind of just get together? Can we get together at a moment like this? What is the good news coming out of this, if there is any? That is uh, a really difficult question to answer, and I don't, I don't really want to speculate, but one of the things I could see coming out of this is an awareness on the part of the Democrats that maybe some of the powers that, that of the presidency that they haven't objected to under Obama are inappropriate. And so maybe we'll start to see rollback of, uh, of dangerous presidential powers like the power to uh, conduct drone strikes anywhere in the world on the whim of the president and never having to defend yourself in court. 
um, or the power to be able to wiretap people without a warrant. Um, I think that, that a lot of people in the country were comfortable with those powers because they had a level of trust with President Obama. Mm-hmm. And so I think if there is any silver lining, maybe it will be an awareness that we need to roll back some of those authorities. You know that a lot of people are saying that they want to move out of the country now. <laughs> are you mm-hmm. one of the people that wants to move out? Because I heard that the Canada website for immigration uh, crashed last night. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think I'm, I'm going to stay put, but I, I know that this type of rhetoric comes up every election cycle. But in this case, for a lot of people in this country, I don't think it's a hyperbole. I mean, um, that, you know, the, some of the people in Trump's circle have said it's constitutional to do things like administer a Sharia test for Muslims under penalty of deportation. Um, really, really extreme things. And I can see if you're, you know, if you're an American Muslim or something, I can I can legitimately see you having those concerns and, and wanting to move out of the country. It's, uh, it's no longer hypothetical. Alex Emmons, uh, The Intercept. His article is The Nightmare President. It's out right now. Thank you, Alex, for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Well, I have with me on the phone Debbie Turner-Bell. She's a journalist and someone that I met um, at Arise, and I just think the world of her. And I think uh, that at this very moment, I would love to kind of hear a little bit of your opinions of um, when you woke up this morning or or maybe even last night, uh, as soon as you saw that Donald Trump had won the presidency of the United States, what was your initial reaction, Debbie? Oh my goodness, I think it was a cascade of reactions crashing together all at the same time. Um, but what it reminded me of was eight years ago when Barack Obama won his first term as president, and of course the first African-American president in this country's history. And I was thrilled, and all my friends were thrilled. Um, at least the ones that, um, you know, I was talking to, but I remember I had a a business meeting that day and, uh, around the room was a mix of people of all backgrounds, all socioeconomic levels. And one of the people in the meeting said, well, half the country is happy. The other half is not so happy. And I remember sitting in that meeting eight years ago. Uh, realizing that for, you know, 46% or so of the country, they were not happy. And, and Barack Obama's presidency being historic didn't mean as much to them as the fact that their candidate didn't win. And for some people, it presented a real threat and was very scary to them. So fast forward to eight years, uh, eight years to now, and I think we're back in that same place where half the country, and really by the popular vote, more than half the country, because Hillary Clinton, one so far is winning the popular vote, is dismayed and shocked and upset and uh, afraid. And then those um, who voted for the winning candidate are thrilled and think that it represents some new era of change. And the, the... the cyclicalness, if I can just coin the phrase, um, is not lost on me. So that's so. There's that. Um, but I'm sad, Jack. I'm very sad because what this presidential campaign did 
taking the candidates out of it was it peeled back the layers uh, of the American cultural onion and revealed what was underneath. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, is this uh, polarized, distrustful, uh, animus, you know, vitriolic uh, uh, division in this country that, you know, frankly, I think many of us thought we had gotten past. And um, the 2016 presidential campaign uh, opened the door to that closet where a whole bunch of skeletons still lie. And so my grief is not because Hillary Clinton didn't win. And I am sorry about that. You know, the history means something to me as an African-American woman in this country. But I'm more sad about the division in this country that my people, and when I say my people, I'm talking about Americans are so far apart and that this campaign was fueled on hate and distrust. And that's immensely um, disappointing to me. Um, Debbie, how do you think this is going to affect the ethnic groups, the minorities in this country, African-American, Latinos in particular? Well, here's the truth. This country's demographic is changing, um, whether anyone likes it or not or wants to admit it or not. Um, you know, in, in less than 50 years, um, brown people will be the majority I count in this country. And that's not going to change. And this presidential cycle is not going to change that. So things are going to have to change, going to have to change legislatively, going to have to change uh, in our leadership and the way we treat each other, talk about one another, uh, and and make space for each other in this country. Um, So I'm not despondent. I mean, I don't think we're going back to um, you know, the Jim Crow 1950s or, you know, even pre-emancipation, you know, 1890. I don't think we're going back. I think what, what this has done is just revealed what's been there, what's been, you know, seething under the surface. And so I see an opportunity in that because um, there's no way that any issue can be uh, addressed unless it's acknowledged. Uh, so it's helpful for everybody to see. And so now there's the opportunity to have real and substantive and intelligent and progressive conversation about how do we come together. It's my great hope that the new administration will make sincere and authentic efforts toward unification. I certainly hope so. Those words were spoken. Let's see if there are actions that back that up. Let me ask you, uh, when you look at media, you as a journalist, uh, myself as well, when we look at the next four years of media in America, are we seeing more people of color? Are we seeing a decline of people of color in media as journalists, uh, in front of the cameras, behind the cameras? How do you, how do you see this moving forward? Well, I think media, you know, the definition of media and the platforms have to change. You know, we're moving uh, progressively into a digital era. Uh, and while still a significant number of people consume their news through traditional channels, 
um, like broadcast media, uh, and certainly to a much lesser extent, but even so, um, print media. That what changed this election was social media. It was the it's the advent of conversation online digitally, and so that it's it's the wild west in some cases, and it also presents the opportunity that everybody has a voice. And that's really what propelled, you know, Donald Trump to popularity. It was everybody got a voice in what they thought about what he had to say, and he was able to speak to everybody. He did not have to wait for an invitation from one of the big four broadcast networks to come on their show and get his message out. He could tweet, and everybody could see it. They could tweet back, and he could see it. So um, we have to change the way we think about communication you know, and about media in in um, this age. Now, to get to your question, you know, there is an increase in minorities. You know, we, we, we see more uh, African Americans, we see more Latinos, we see more women on the air and in newsrooms than we've ever seen. But do you now, think that'll continue, that Debbie? Do you think that'll continue? Well, I, I certainly hope so. I think it has to. I think it has to, but but that's not the point, Jack. The point is the decision makers. I don't know that we're seeing uh, the commiserate diversity happening in the executive halls of those media organizations, and that's where change is going to come. You know that when the network presidents and the and the shareholders and the VPs also represent the demographics of this country, I think we'll see different editorial decisions and different content decisions being made. Right. And really, that's where our, our attention uh, needs to be focused, in addition to uh, who appears on the air. Last two questions. I know you're a parent, and uh, a lot of what was talked about yesterday, uh, CNN and MSNBC by the panel was, what am I going to tell my children? So as a parent, as a mother... Uh, what are you telling your children this morning about this to. new presidency, that bullying yeah. is okay, that by being this type of person, you get to win? H- how are you thinking about yeah. how to t- talk to your children from now on? Yeah, you know, it's a two-edged sword. I have a six-year-old daughter, so she's old enough to be aware of what's happening in the world around her. She's not quite old enough to have nuanced understanding of it. So she had her opinions. She was a clear Hillary Clinton supporter. She was vocal about that. Uh, I took her with me to vote because I wanted her to see uh, the electoral process in progress. I wanted to see, you know, how our country operates as a democracy. And and she went right into the booth with me. Uh, so she was aware of that. And I had to tell, of course, she didn't stay up to uh, see all the coverage last night, and I had to tell her when she woke up this morning, and she almost cried. Uh, But this is what I told her, that, like it or not, Donald Trump is our president. And even if you don't like the person, I think it is our responsibility to respect the office, something that wasn't always afforded our outgoing president. But in my house, that's what I'm going to teach my child. And I told her, when she, when you go to school today, you do not badmouth your president. You know, he is your president, like it or not. So our only hope uh, is to unify around this president, to make sure every voice is heard, to get involved civically. You know, uh, what I hope becomes part of the conversation is our whole country pays attention to part, uh, politics quadrennially every four years. 
What I hope going forward will happen is we'll pay attention to the school board elections and to the county uh, office elections and the sheriff elections and the local politicians because really that's where politics starts. And if we are involved, uh, particularly as minorities, on those grassroots local levels, then some of these big fights on the national level might not seem so daunting. The Judicial, Senate, and the House are Republican. There is not, no opposition whatsoever to uh, Democrats whatsoever. They can't stop anything, basically, that Donald Trump wants to do. This is so extreme uh, that I can't even wrap my head around how uh, lopsided this win was. Is there a silver lining here for us? I'm hoping that the silver lining will be that people will see what happens when you're not engaged. This is what happens when, not, when enough people are not paying attention. Uh, and it remains to be seen whether or not this lack of check and balance in our national government um, will be um, devastating you know, to any communities or to us as a country or to our standing globally. You know, I, I just, we all have to wait and see what's going to happen. But if anything, what I hope the lesson is, is that everybody realizes that we have to pay attention from the beginning. Starting right now, we need to hold our congressmen and our senators to task for what is important to us and our communities. Uh, and when the next election comes along, and that's not, four years from now, but two years from now, our voices need to be heard. So that, you know, there should be check and balances. There should not be uh, um, a single party that dominates all three branches of government. That's not how our founding fathers intended it. And it's my hope that the American people will step up and um, do better next time. Debbie, thank you so much for being on the podcast and giving us some of your wisdom. Um, I uh, I hope things work out the way you you because uh, you seem very optimistic about this, which is I think something that we actually do need. I think there's this particular malaise that's affected us uh, this week, and uh, I, I think we need more sensible conversations like the one you're having. I think we need people who look at things from a rational perspective, even though a lot to a lot of people this is completely irrational, but we do need some sort of sensibility here to kind of uh, put our feet on the ground and maybe start making some change. I mean, it, we're starting from scratch, but we got to start from somewhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's the point. The, you know, the, the reason this election turned out the way it did was because there was a significant portion of our population that desperately wanted change. Uh, and we all should take uh, a page from that playbook. You know, if you if you want change, you, you have to galvanize and you have to get involved. And so if it didn't go your way this time, it's a mandate for you to, to make sure that you're properly represented next time. That's the only way I can get out of bed tomorrow. <laughs> I have to look at it that way. <laughs> and with that said, Debbie Turnerbell, thank you for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Jack. And that will conclude this special edition of the Highly Relevant Podcast. Happy or sad, I hope some of these interviews helped you understand, relate, or even learn a thing or two over a new dawn of American politics with Donald Trump as our president. 
Let's continue to have the discussion. Email me at highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. That's highlyrelevant at showbizcafe.com. And share your opinions and thoughts on how you're feeling about Trump becoming our new president. I'll put you on the next podcast next week. That's it for now. And thanks for listening. And may God bless us all. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.